Amen. You can grab a seat. Um, we know that it's kind of chaotic in here, and we don't have our kids' spaces open, and they're laying on the floor and color doing all that, so just get over it. Uh, it's all part of the joy. So that's going to bug you. We're going to be in the wrong place for a while. Um, doesn't bug us. We love it. It'll be fine, but uh, we recognize that it's it's uh, just different, and so we're trying to navigate all that together, and so I'm just grateful we get to, to be here together. So um, last week, we kind of started back in with, uh, we're not really diving into a series yet or anything like that, simply because in just a couple weeks, Advent starting, and kind of my favorite time of the year is we talk about church and what that looks like, and so we're going to do some stuff there, and then we'll probably wait until uh, January to kind of launch into a big new series, and so I started thinking about what it is I wanted to engage in when we first came back into the building. We've been kind of teaching things that were just on our heart. Brandon and I were alternating all summer long. And as we stepped back in the building, I just kind of reinvested in the letters of First, Second, and Third John. And they're really important and powerful letters. First John is the one, of course, we know really well because it's sort of this big theological powerhouse and talks about all kinds of incredible things about really what it means to fully give over to Christ. And it's this big, neat letter. It's, you know, great great, we all know it, but 2nd and 3rd John, those letters are much smaller. 2nd John's only got 13 verses, 3rd uh, John only has 14, they're very small, they're written very specifically to people, intricately kind of written, and you get this sense when you read them that we're peering into this sort of personal relationship, and all of Scripture's that way on some level, but really these small letters where uh, John addresses it to one singular person, you're really gazing into the correspondence of of a man who loves the church and loves Christ, wanting to give his best to those that are following him. So last week we looked at his letter to this lady that he just simply calls the chosen lady. And we talked about the idea that maybe it's a metaphor for the church or maybe it's actually a specific person, but he addresses her as a specific person basically saying, listen, I found incredible joy that I've bumped into some of your children and they are walking with the Lord. And we talked about finding joy in the successes of others and how we live and are called to live as an encouragement as a follower of Christ to people. And as we kind of left here, we talked about the idea of walking in this kind of love, like really burying ourselves in this idea of I want to be an encouragement and a light to people, um, a peacemaker, and, and how we could do that. And I kind of encourage you to reach out and find tangible ways, whether it's writing letters or making a phone call or just being an encouragement in the life of people. Well, we're going to take that one farther, a little farther step in that same direction today as we look at the letter of 3 John, just a few verses in there, where John's going to take this idea of walking in love and he's going to expand it a little bit. He's going to write this letter to a, a singular person, a man by the name of Gaius, and he's going to encourage him again, just like we saw him do last week with the woman uh, with the children. He's going to encourage her and then he's going to challenge Gaius to continue to not walk just in love but to walk in truth. And we're going to look at the comparison of walking in love and truth. We're going to learn a few things from Gaius, and then we're going to learn a real hard lesson from a young man named uh, Diotrephes, which is um, kind of the other way the heart can do, go. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in a letter of Third John. If not, you're welcome to follow along with me. I found mine, so we're, we have COVID recovered. It's a COVID miracle. And so uh, I've got my Bible back. We're in good shape. So let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we will dive into the Word this morning. Lord, I do thank you for um, just the opportunity to gather here and open your Word. What a privilege it is as the church to come together. So, Lord, we ask that you would take the next few moments on our hearts with all of us gathered in this place and just teach us. You would just teach our hearts. It doesn't have to be life-changing or world-shattering. Just meet each of us right where we are and empower or encourage or convict or whatever that might look like. Take a second in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. Just say, God, teach my heart. 
For the next few minutes, Lord, open your word and teach my heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Uh, Maybe it's your children or your husband or your wife, or maybe it's uh, someone you've never seen before. Just take a moment and and pray for them and just ask the Lord to teach them, to move in them. We want to be a church that's in the habit of praying for other people all the time. So every Sunday morning as we open the word, we ask uh, the Lord to move in the lives of people around us. Everything that unfolds here on a Sunday morning is not about you. So just ask the Lord to teach the heart of the person next to you. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in this place. Uh, We turn it completely over to you. We don't invite you here, God. There is nowhere we can go that you are not. You are in every breath we breathe. And so, Lord, we just surrender to you. We ask you to move in this place and fill us with your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' holy, perfect, and risen name. Amen. So the letter of 3 John is another letter that was written very specifically to an individual. Just 14 short verses. We're going to look at the first 10 or so. Breeze through the first five kind of quickly. And then focus on the middle section as we're introduced to this gentleman named Gaius. And this is the letter of 3 John there. It comes directly following 2 John if you're lost. All right. So the elder to my friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health. And that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness of the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told, you, they have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to them so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about, um, about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. <clears throat> so we almost make it to that whole letter. <clears throat> Excuse me, personal correspondence. And he writes John, he introduces the same way that he does the letter of 2 John. He, sa- oh, he says, I am the elder. An elder, in, in, as we looked at last week, is used interchangeably with overseer. Basically, John is stating his authority, saying, I am, right, the overseer or an overseer of the church, meaning I am armed with protecting the church from heresy. I'm called to teach and lead. And he says, I'm writing to you, whom I love and I care for. And this is the same way he addresses the lady in, the chosen lady in this letter of 2 John, where he says, I, the elder, John, am writing to you whom I love, and I want to encourage you first. And he encourages the lady last week by saying, I've seen some of your children there walking in truth, and I am so proud, and I am honored, and I want to encourage you that they're walking in love, and that your efforts have not been forgotten. He basically says the same thing to Gaius. He says, listen, I want to encourage you, brother. I'm glad that you're in good health and things are going well, and it's given me great joy to know that some of the brothers have come back to tell me about your faithfulness. And now you continue to walk in the truth and have no greater joy than hearing it. So John does this movement of encouragement again, except he changes his language a little bit from the second John letter of walking in love to this idea of walking in truth. 
John loves the word truth, and his gospel uses it at least 25 times. And this letter alone, the first four verses, uses it four, and he goes on to use it a few more times. And the idea of truth is really interchangeable with John's idea of Jesus. Remember in John 14, 6, John records Jesus saying this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, John's understanding of truth is often exchanged and interchangeable with his understanding of Jesus, meaning Jesus is truth. So when John says, I find great encouragement that you're walking in truth, he's actually kind of saying, I find it great and encouraging that you're walking in Jesus. That you are walking in a way where you are completely surrounded and engaged in Christ. Now, a lot of times, we refer to our walk with Christ, right, as just that, a walk with Christ. And we see our gospel relationship with Jesus oftentimes as a partnership. That's how a lot of us look at it. So I'm walking with Jesus, and if I do my part, Jesus does his part. Meaning, if I try and keep myself morally pure and I make some good decisions, then Jesus is going to let me keep my job. Or if I try and do my best to be really nice to people, then Jesus will replace that with like faithfulness or goodness or kindness or he'll repay me. And we see this sort of exchange of kind of a partnership there that if I do this, God does this. And if I don't do this, then God corrects me. And while not entirely incorrect, it's a really poor way to look at what happens when we give our lives to Jesus. Because we surrender our lives to Christ, we're not exchanging it for a partnership in which we walk on our own and Jesus walks beside us. What happens when we surrender our life to Christ is we become completely lost in him. In fact, he becomes our life. And we are surrendered and submerged in Jesus. Therefore, when we walk, we walk in Christ and not with Christ. Not side by side. But instead, he becomes our very existence, our very breath, our very life. Therefore, our walk with Christ is actually a walk in Christ. I know it's a small little distinction there, but it's a really important one because we are called to completely surrender our lives to Christ, not walk our agenda while God walks his agenda, but we are to say, God, what was mine I died to. I want to die to myself so that I be found completely in you. And so what what John is saying here when he talks about walking in truth, he's saying, I found it incredibly encouraging that you are so submerged in Jesus that you are so lost in Christ that you are walking completely in truth, in him, that your life looks a lot like that of Jesus. Now, it's important to know that because he's going to tell us why, and he's going to give some examples. And we're going to learn a couple things about Gaius here. The first thing we really learned about Gaius is that Gaius was walking very faithfully in his relationship with the Lord. So faithful, though, that people that encountered Gaius came back and told the church about Gaius's love. So listen to this. Dear friend, you are so faithful in what you are doing that the brothers, even though they are strangers to you, have come back and told the church about your love. So there's this group of guys, apparently, that have gone out to take the gospel to the world. They've encountered Gaius, and Gaius has been so welcoming and kind to them and brought them in and cared for them and loved them that they have returned to the church where they came from, the gathering that they came from, and they've said, you've got to meet this guy, Gaius, because his love is amazing. So what we learn about Gaius is that he is so faithful in walking out his love for Christ that people come back and talk about the way that he loves They don't come back and go, man, if you guys make it that far down to kind of the area of Asia Minor and you come across Gaius, his house is incredible. He's got a pool and they got all kinds of cool stuff. They're playing cornhole at night. He's like free beer for everybody. It's amazing. No, he says they come back and they talk about his love. 
They're not talking about the food or how his family was. They came back and they tell the church and they go, this guy loves. He didn't even know us, took us in, cared for us, treated us in a manner, as John says, that was worthy of God. I started thinking about that, right? I started thinking, what do people say about me when I'm not around? I actually don't really want to know. I mean, I kind of already know, but I don't really want to know because I guarantee what they're not saying is this. Man, we went and just told everybody about Treb's love. Never has that come out of someone's mouth. They're told about my harshness, my mouth, my inappropriateness, my whatever, 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 but they're not talking about that. Because the truth is, is that I'm oftentimes competing, trying to, like most of us, trying to portray an image or an idea or worried about myself or what people will think, that I'm not walking necessarily in truth, in Christ, but I'm trying to walk alongside Jesus to navigate the path that I want. When we do that, what becomes very clear is me and not Jesus. It's how most of us do handle our walk with Christ. We're super concerned about ourselves, washed up in ourselves, in fact, and walking beside and along Jesus as opposed to being completely submerged in him. But Caius was in this place where he so loved people, so loved the Lord, that they basically mistook his life for love. And they returned to the church and they said, man, you gotta, this guy loves, loves. What do you think people say about you? Like if they were to encounter you and leave your house and go back and tell somebody else about you, what would they say? Well, they talk about your, your, your anger, your language, your frustration. Well, they talk about your ideas, your thoughts, your smarts, your money, your house, your whatever it is. But well, they talk about your love, the way that you treated them in a manner that was worthy of God, the way they were strangers yet you welcomed them into your home, the way that you cared enough about them for them to return to wherever they came from and said, I don't know much about Gaius, but this dude loves, man. The reality is that the culture, society, does not have that picture of church when it talks about the church of Jesus Christ. Most people, when they're non-believers or people, people that are not followers of Christ, when they have an encounter with the church, very seldom is that encounter one where they return and say, man, I don't know much about what those guys believe, but they love. A lot of times they'll call the church full of hypocrites or judgment, judgmental people or whatever, and oftentimes they're not wrong. Oftentimes that's how we live. It's what we bleed, right? We get on whatever moral soapbox that is and we stand on and we shout everybody else down. Not all, but of course that's a big part of what we do. And we get to decide what moral soapbox we're going to stand on that day because we're walking with Christ and not in him. And so our love looks different when it's driven by me. But Gaius was walking faithful in this thing, right? Enough so John says, man, I got to tell you, I want you to be encouraged. This is what people are saying about you. That your love, so magnificent, that you're walking in truth, submerged in Jesus so powerfully, right? And it brings me great joy that others are coming back and talking about your love and that you're sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God. The second thing that we really learn about Gaius in all this is that he has this incredibly kind of kingdom-minded kind of thought process or heart. He's very kingdom-minded. He's not very worldly or very Gaius-minded. Because here's the deal. These guys are strangers. We don't know much about them. We just know that they were sent out, taking the gospel to the world. And, and John even says that even though they were strangers to you, you treated them in such a way that was worthy of God. You welcomed them in. I started thinking about how this sort of kingdom mindset says, I don't really care about me or my church or our affiliation, but more I want 
people that are following Jesus to be encouraged and loved and sent out, powered, take care of their needs. The Bible is full of this idea of the fellowship of sharing, right? Taking the sort of Acts 2 mentality of sharing things in common and being for other people that are driven by the gospel. This is not the Western picture of the church. It's actually not the picture of church around the world. The church is incredibly divided. And we've labeled those divisions with all kinds of denominations, whether we're Pentecostal or, or Methodist or Presbyterian or non-denominational or we're this or we're that or whatever label we want to put on. And we form our little factions. And in our little factions, we fight within the faction. And then the faction splinters into another one until we're dissatisfied with that one and we splinter again until we're dissatisfied with that one. It's why the majority of our church growth in America is not actually new believers. It's just dissatisfied other church people that don't like where they were last time. I mean, the truth is, and I'm not being rude, I'm just saying most of you are here because you didn't like where you were. Too big, too small, too this, too tall, too smoky, not smoky enough, like whatever. You're here because, well, we just didn't find it, we didn't connect, we didn't plug in, we moved into it, whatever it is. That's a lot of what's happening in our culture with churches. We become so dissatisfied, and then we talk about the churches up the street and down the street because we see them oftentimes, as sadly as this is, as competition. So-and-so's got 3,000, they're doing this, and they've got a rock climbing wall, and they've got all these kind of things. We've got to keep up with that. Says who? But the reality is that's how we see things when we're not kingdom-minded. When we're not focused on this bigger picture of saying, we just want to see people know Jesus. I mean, when's the last time in your life you've honestly prayed for the churches in your own neighborhood where you live, on your street? When's the last time that we as a community have taken time to pray for Crown Heights Methodist, Crown Heights Christian, Right? the Baptist church up there, all these churches. When we first moved into this area, we realized that within a one and a half block radius, there's 12 churches. Are we celebrating the great successes of those churches? And I recognize there's all kinds of flaws in that logic and some churches are theologically less inclined than others and there's all kinds of heresy and bankruptcy. I get all that, I really do. But I'm talking about a bigger picture, which is on some level we all, as true Protestant evangelical churches are saying, I believe in Jesus. How can we encourage each other and celebrate each other's wins? Well, Gaius was in this kingdom mind. I don't care where you're a stranger from. Just come. You're welcome here. I've told the story a thousand times. We went to China, right? We took a team to China a couple of times, and we were working with the underground church there. We were planting and doing Bible studies with folks. And, and uh, I remember getting onto a crowded subway, and we were always really careful because we didn't want to get our, our missionaries that were there in trouble. And so, you know, while the places that we were, it wasn't necessarily legal for us to promote the gospel, but they, it was not an open place to the gospel, and the people that we were around could be arrested and, and even worse. And I remember I was getting on this crowded subway, and I am, I'm a big dude in China. Um, I'm not a small dude here, but I'm not that big, but in China, I am a giant. And uh, so, like, everywhere I go, people are in my armpits, right? And I'm, like, just towering over people. And I'm not even that tall, but there... I'm a rather big, in fact, we were teaching an English class one day, and a lady said, in, in English, because they're English, we're working on English, she says, I have a question. I said, I have an answer. She says, are you a giant from your country? And I was like, first of all, it's super offensive. <laughs> Second of all, no, but I see what you're saying. So anyway, this, I'm getting on the subway, and this guy locks eyes with me. He's coming out. We are bodies to bodies, and he's coming out, and he looks at me, and he stops in English, and he says, are you a believer? And my heart kind of dropped because I didn't know necessarily what we were supposed to say at that point in time. 
because we knew that we, were on, we weren't supposed to be in the country like just advancing the gospel. We were there to support the local missionaries that were there, but we didn't want to get them exposed or in trouble. And so I didn't know, I'm not going to lie about it, but I just caught that moment where I was like, and I said, yes. And he took one step forward and he threw his arms around me. Just, I mean, in for the real thing kind of deal, right? Like neck nuzzle, the whole deal, like right up in this. I kind of laid my arms on him going, this is super weird. But while we're here, might as well, right? And he just hung on. And then after about what seemed like an hour, he just leaves. And I thought to myself as I walked back onto that, as I got back on that subway, I thought, not once did this guy look at me like, hey, are you a Baptist? Or what church are you from? Or how big are you guys? Or what are you doing? Or should I hug you or not? He just saw someone that he asked and felt like, do I have this immediate connection because of our love for Christ? And all our secondary questions will be answered later at some point in time. But he didn't even really care. All he wanted to do was hug me because I believed in Jesus. And I just thought to myself, that kind of kingdom mindset that says, I just want to love you and hug you because you believe in Jesus, is so foreign to me. It's just so foreign to me, right? Our theological leanings in America, and even on the Western side of things, is that when you say you're a believer, I want to try and figure out what that means theologically so that I can argue with you or decide if we're actually compatible or not. It's just true. Where do you go? What kind of worship you guys have? What do you believe about this? What are your thoughts on the end times? What are your thoughts on this? Are you Calvin? Are you not Calvin? Are, what are we, instead of just going, dude, you believe in Jesus, like I'll, I'll hug you for that. We're in. And the church, when it's kingdom-minded, becomes this incredible representation of what it means to walk completely submerged in truth. But when fractured, we run into something else. And this is what we run into. So listen to what John also says. He says, listen, and I'll wrap everything up with this. He says, I also wrote a letter to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I'll call attention to what he's done, gossiping maliciously, but not even satisfied with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. And he stops those who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. So he's saying, listen, this is what happens when the heart becomes not kingdom-minded, but inwardly focused. He said, I wrote a letter to the church, but there's this guy named Diotrephus. We don't know much about him really at all. But he would have none of it, because he loves to be first. In fact, he didn't even welcome the brothers that we sent. And what is more, he's gossiping about us to others. And on top of that is it's not enough if there were people in his community that welcomed the brothers in. He put those people out of the church. There's a couple of really important things we need to learn about Diotrephus real quick. And that's one, that he's a believer. right? We know that from all practical understandings here. And two, we know that he's some kind of church leader because he has the power to put people out of the church. So we know, like Gaius, who happens to be a church leader, who John would write to. And we know we have Diotrephus, who happens to be the church leader who... John would write to because he wrote a letter to that church. Different heart sets, different mindsets. Diotrephus says, no, they're strangers. Don't take them in. They're not like us. They probably believe different things. We don't know anything about them. This is about us here. This is about our community. We need to take care of ourselves and protect ourselves and be ready. Because I love to be first. In other words, my image is important and what we're doing here is important. It's his church, his community. He also loves to gossip on some level. Maybe not crazy, but he's like, he likes to say things that aren't his to say. Whether it's about them or other people, John makes that clear. He says, when I come, I'm actually going to expose that because it's 
It's death. And then it says, one last thing, he says, and then those people within the community that want to welcome him in, want to open the horizons, want to be different ways of thinking at least, he actually says, you're not welcome here. Now, that's a massive indictment and something really broken in Diotrephus' heart, right? You have Gaius, you got this other guy. But I started thinking about the picture of these folks and where they fit in the kind of picture of the church. And the truth is, they're both sitting in this room. And they're both sitting in pretty much all of our churches. And Diotrephus, I don't think, would be as unrecognizable. It would be kind of unrecognizable. I don't think he'd be as recognizable as you think he would. I don't think he's standing out in the corner saying, no one's welcome, you can't come, we hate people. I think he'd probably like him. I think he's probably funny and he's got, he looks cool and he's probably concerned with his image and he's given off this idea of like, look, we need to make sure that we grow. We need to take our resources and put them back into this community so we can take care of ourselves and we can build a bigger space or do a different thing or we need to take care of this. Those guys out there aren't going to help us. We don't want to give our resources out there. And then someone raises their hand and goes, no, no, I think we should. And you know, they're homeless or they're poor or they're broken or they're addicts. We should welcome them in. And he says, no, we're not going to do that right now. We need to make sure that we're healthy. And he says, no, I'm going to take them in. And they says, well, then you can take them in over there. And maybe not that blatant, but that's how it happens. When the church begins to come inwardly focused, it begins to worry about its image, what it looks like, how it measures up to every other building down the street or every other community. When it begins to say, we need to take care of our own first. And when it begins to say, if you're not with us, then you can do it over there. The church is dead. It's dead. And Diotrephus, he doesn't hold a billboard out there saying everything's awful. He just slowly ingrains his way into our hearts. We begin to talk about each other. You know, so-and-so's back. You know, they're going through a divorce. You know, they came. You know what he did? Can you believe that they're here? That small little inkling of gossip, guys as a prayer request or whatever, that we all kind of share and spread about each other, it's, it's the beginning of death, the death of the church. The maintenance of ourself at all costs Hey, we've got to make sure we take care of us first. Let's stockpile enough cash to make sure that we go through a hard season. We're going to survive on the other side before we give money away. The maintenance of ourselves to make sure that, well, they have a building and they have a better youth program. We've got to make sure we do that to get those kids to want to come here. Those kind of decisions lead to death. Because they are inwardly focused and diotrephus like the church wants to be first. What do you want to be known for? Largest church, fastest growing church, biggest church, best church, or the church like Gaius that loves. I don't know anything about what those cats are doing down there. But they love. They love. They love. That's what I would love to be known for. Both of these places, both of these people, they're right there in front of us. What's the church we want to be? This morning we're celebrating communion, which is this, this picture that Jesus gave, the gathering of people, this, this, this tangible thing that we can hold on to, that he gave the church to basically say, this is how you can know and be committed to the idea that we are all in this thing together. That when you gather, this is what ties you to other believers, that you believe that Jesus died for your sin and was raised from the dead. The table at communion is what unites us with other believers across space, literally in time. For centuries and centuries, the church has stood on this one foundational truth, that Jesus is God's son, and that he died for us and was raised 
so that we might have life. Every other tiny little piece of the puzzle that works itself into communities or whatever is always secondary to that. So this table is that uniting factor. And it's a really amazing picture. But more exciting, no, I'll take that back. Let me rephrase that. Not more exciting, but equally for me today as exciting as this table is the fact that Logan Parsons made this table for us. Our Vine Kids director, her and her husband, took the wood and they made it. Because we were operating with one of these little janky things from Sam's, which Jesus still uses, by the way. But this thing is incredible. And it's a labor of love that every element that they put into and the stain they use and the way they ground out the metal legs, when you walk by and you see it, you will look at it and be like, they have poured their heart into this. Because what I told her was I wanted an expression of something that looked like we loved. And so this is what they poured out for us. And so I'm so excited. This is the very first Sunday that we get to actually use it as an expression of what deep and true love looks like. On top of that, our friends, Brandon and Jenny Scott, who you also know, who have been with us now for years, and Brandon pastors here. When we went to Guatemala, we went to this glass factory. We picked up all of this communionware. This is not from Pier 1, um, although it looks like it. This, this stuff, this, this, this vase and these glasses come from a place where a family would take broken trash glass from the dumps or other places and recycle glass, and they would break it, beer bottles, Coke bottles, whatever it was. They would break it down, they would melt it, and they would make new things. So really what we're taking communion out of is a bunch of garbage. But is there a better metaphor or picture of what Christ does for us, that he takes these things that we are, this broken, discarded group of poor decisions and mess-ups, and he refines us and remakes us into something completely new, completely new, that our old creation, our old self is gone, and the new has come. So today, we get to celebrate communion on this incredible table that was an offering of love using glassware that is a picture of who we are in Christ, united together across space and time with other believers by common elements that Christ himself said, when you do this, you will be united and you will do this in remembrance of me. So wherever you're from, whatever your background is, as long as you proclaim faith in Christ, this table is for you. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you, that as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. This is the great reminder that we are one in Christ, and we are called to walk in love and walk in truth. This morning, we're taking communion differently because of the fun times that we're in. We have got prepackaged little bread and juice, and so we're going to invite you as Don and our team lead us in worship to uh, come down, give each other enough space, take your time, uh, come down and take bread and a cup of juice and return to your seats, and you can take communion that way. You can take for as many as you need for your family, but um, we're going to pray, and then Don's going to lead us, and our team's going to lead us in worship, and then we're going to invite you to come down to that table over there. Um, and create enough space to make sure you give each other the distance you need. Uh, Take communion, return to your seats, and then we'll continue to stand as we close our time in worship. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that these common elements, these 
pieces of bread and juice, these things that are common to us as people, are transformed in a unique way to remind us of your goodness and your holiness and your beauty and perfection. So we're thankful that this table is open to all those who profess faith in Christ. It's not a Vine Community Church table. It's not a denominational table. It is a proclamation of the goodness of God. And so, Lord, we ask that as we take communion today, we be reminded of that incredible truth that what you did for us, we could not do for ourselves. And that we are called to love that way, to love people the way that you loved people. So, Lord, as we take part in this meal and we share this together, Lord, and we close in worship, we ask you to just unite our hearts, make us lovers of each other, celebrating the great joys in each other's lives, and being people that would be, well, that they would talk about our love. We love you, Jesus. Amen. As you feel called and led, we encourage you to just come down and take uh, elements and then continue to stand, and we will continue to worship together.